Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. How's everybody feeling? Somebody's excited to be here today. I want to welcome all of our Bridgepoint family watching online as well. Church, could we give it up for them? Everybody watching online, we love you guys. I know many of you have been watching online for the last several months and totally understand, but when you feel comfortable, I'd love to invite you back because as you guys have noticed, over the last year, our building has undergone quite the transformation. I mean, from this time last year to now, we've built out an entire kids area. We've redone floors. We've done the lobby. We had a Dream Team central room to serve our amazing Dream Teamers. And the best part is we did it completely debt-free. And so I want to thank you guys for your generosity. It allows us to do things like that. And I'm excited for what this next season has in store for us. And and I'm excited for what today has in store because we're jumping back into this series called Things Jesus Never Said. I want to give two caveats here at the beginning, just two quick reminders. The first one is this. You'll notice that there's a number on your screen that you can text in questions at any point today. And I like to set aside time at the end of each of my messages to answer questions that you guys have. I will say last week in second service, you guys kind of blew up our text message line. So we didn't get a chance to answer most of those. But what we're going to do is we're going to compile all the questions that went unanswered. And we're going to do a special edition of our podcast at the end of this series. So your questions will be answered. Just hang on. We're going to collect a few more and we'll put that together. The second thing is that today we're going to celebrate communion. So if you're watching online, go ahead and raid your pantry, grab whatever you can, maybe grab a few pieces of paper because we're going to have an opportunity to journal. But for those of you who are here this morning, we have all that taken care of for you. So having said that, we want to kind of reset what this series is all about. The idea behind the series that a lot of people grow up around church or maybe you grew up in church. You've heard a lot of sermons, maybe you've read a little bit of the Bible, but sometimes we kind of impose our own worldview on Jesus. And so there's things that we think Jesus said, but he actually didn't say. For example, you might think that Jesus said, well, you should be nice to everybody. Jesus actually never said, be nice. Jesus said we should love everyone, but sometimes love means there may be some harsh words or rebuke. In fact, Jesus' harshest words were always reserved for the religious people who tried to make it hard for other people to get to Jesus. Uh, You might think that Jesus said, well, money is bad. Jesus never said that. Now, he talks about making sure that we don't value things above Jesus and, and talks about stewardship, but he never said that money in and of itself was bad. And last week, we kicked off this series by saying, here's the thing that Jesus never said. Here's how to get to heaven. See, Jesus never came and said, here's how to get to heaven. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's message, I want to challenge you to go back and check it out. Not because it's like the best message in the world, but I think it gives us a new paradigm for thinking about how we live our life. Because as we saw, Jesus didn't come to get us out of earth and into heaven. He came to bring heaven to earth. And if that's true, it means every day we have an opportunity to unleash heaven or unleash hell. Like today, you're going to have an opportunity to bring heaven to earth or unleash hell on earth. When you get in an argument with your spouse later, you can unleash heaven or you can unleash hell. When you have a difficult time parenting, which I don't know about for you, for me, that's every day. You have an opportunity to unleash heaven or unleash hell. When you're promoted and all of a sudden you get a big bonus, you have all these extra resources, you have an opportunity to use that to unleash heaven or unleash hell. See, everything we do matters. And today, I want to pick up with a saying that I don't think people really believe that Jesus said this, but it's such a popular belief in our culture 
that it actually influences how we see our faith. In fact, um, I love reading the book, The Wizard of Oz. Anybody here ever seen the movie, The Wizard of Oz? All right, anybody here ever read the book, The Wizard of Oz? There's like two of us, good, book nerds unite. And I'm gonna be that guy, the book is better than the movie. You know the whole deal. But the book is actually very different from the movie. And one of the most striking differences comes when Dorothy actually gets to the Emerald City. Do you remember this part in the movie? Well, in the book, they tell her that you actually have to put on these glasses because the city is so brilliant, it will blind you if you don't wear them. So she and all her friends put on their glasses. They go around. The city is beautiful. Everything is sparkling. Well, they finally meet the, the Wizard of Oz, and he tells them they can take off their glasses. And what they realize is the Emerald City, it's not emerald. It's boring and dull and drab. But the wizard had actually convinced everybody to put these glasses with green lenses on so that everything would look beautiful and bright. And see, we all wear lenses. When you look at the world, the world is colored by the lenses that you wear. It's how you grew up, uh, your past, your experiences. It all colors how we view Jesus. And so the goal in this series is to help us take off those lenses, see Jesus for who he really is. Because today he's going to confront a popular held belief, a lens that our culture has put over us. Today, here's the thing Jesus never said. He never said, stand up for your rights. He never told his followers to stand up for their rights. Now, this is a challenging teaching because in our culture, we're taught, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, or if you're not on the political spectrum at all, everybody says we ought to stand up for our rights. We ought to defend our beliefs. We want to let our voice be heard. And in fact, that's how a lot of us even approach who are we voting for, the person who's going to stand up for my rights and defend my faith and do the things that I want to do. But what we see in the life of Jesus is not a call to stand up for our rights, but instead to lay down our life. It's a radically different way to live. I think that's most evident through the cross. But this morning, I want to look at at a story from Jesus' life that I think may be right up there with demonstrating this principle. This morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Palm Sunday. And I know what you're thinking. Matt, Easter was a couple weeks ago. Palm Sunday was even before that. You're a little behind the times. And I get that. But I think this story is so crucial for us to understand because uh, growing up, you know, Palm Sunday for me, when I would go to church, you know, the kids are waving their palm branches and everybody's cheering and you get the picture of Jesus where he's riding in on the donkey and he's got the Miss America wave and everybody's happy and worshiping. But when you actually read the Palm Sunday story, it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, Jesus wasn't happy and waving. Jesus was weeping that day. And so this morning, I want to look at the story in John chapter 12. But before we jump in, I want to give you a little context, a little background. I know some of you hate when I give the context in the background, but I really think it fleshes out. It's going to help us understand what was happening when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we got to go all the way back to Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the Jewish people were living as slaves. In fact, they had been impressed and in bondage for, for hundreds of years. And they remembered that their ancestors had been promised by God that they would be a mighty nation that would bring heaven to earth. And yet here they are, enslaved and oppressed by the greatest empire in the world, and they need God to show up and rescue them. So they cry out to God, send someone to save us. And God sends a savior, a Messiah, named Moses. And Moses walks up to Pharaoh, who's the leader of the whole Egyptian empire, and he says, let my people go. Oh, the white pastor's not allowed to sing, huh? I see how it is. All right. 
But you know the story. He says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, thanks, but no thanks, right? I'm not giving away my free slave labor. And so God sends a series of plagues on Egypt. And it culminates with the death of the firstborn in every household. God says, I'm going to allow the angel of death to sweep through. There's going to be severe consequences. But then he tells the Jewish people that if you will take a lamb, it's got to be a perfect lamb. Not, not like the three-legged lamb you got at Bob's Discount Livestock. Okay, it's got to be a perfect lamb. And you sacrifice it. I want you to take the blood of the lamb and smear it on the doorpost. I want you to take the meat and cook it and share a meal with your family. And for every house that has blood on the doorpost, the angel of death will pass over it. Now, we got to put in context how strange this is. Okay, the weather outside is great. So imagine you're driving home from church. You pull in your neighborhood, you got the windows down, and you can smell several people in your neighborhood are cooking some barbecue, amen? And you're just trying to get that smell in, and all of a sudden you look over and you notice they've rubbed blood on their door. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd probably call in the cops if I see a bunch of doors with blood on. I mean, this is a strange thing. But, but God was demonstrating that, that the blood of the lamb is going to bring your salvation. It's going to allow the angel of death to pass over. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh wakes up the next morning and he's devastated by the death in his empire. And so he says, I'm done with this. I'm done fighting you. I'm done fighting your God. Just get out of my nation. And so Moses leads the Jewish people out of bondage and into freedom. And for the next several years, as they are headed into the land that God promised them, they lived in these temporary shelters. They called them tabernacles or or booths. And while they were traveling, God gave them commands that they were to follow. And some of these commands, there were certain festivals that all Jewish people were required to celebrate each and every year. I want to talk about two of them for just a moment. The first festival that the Jewish people were always required to celebrate was called Passover. And what they would do is they would get together with their family members and they would share a meal where they remembered the night that the angel of death passed over them because of the blood of the lamb. This is a a meal that's all about freedom. It's all about breaking out of bondage, breaking out of oppression. When God took these slaves and defeated the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. Now there was another festival. This one is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And sometimes it was called Sukkot because that's the Hebrew word for booths. And in this festival, the Jewish people would come into the temple and they would bring these palm branches and they would kind of wave them to the north and the south and the east and the west and then up and then down. And then they would light a fire offering that would burn for eight days. And during this time, they would take those palm branches and they would build these temporary houses. They called them tabernacles or booths. And they would live in them to reenact and remember that their ancestors lived in them on their journey to freedom. And so year in and year out, the Jewish people would practice these festivals. Now, what the Old Testament tells us is Israel has its ups and downs, but eventually it just has down after down after down. And they reject God. They push against him. They don't want to live the way he wants them to live. So God says, I'm not going to force myself into a relationship with you. So he removes his protection and Israel's enemies come in and defeat them. And they once again become a people enslaved and in bondage and oppressed. So the Old Testament ends with this question. Will God rescue us again like he did before? Will he show up once again to deliver us to freedom? And so the Jewish people were always looking for another savior, another Messiah. 
In fact, I love the story. In the 160s BC, at that point, the most powerful empire on earth was the Seleucid Empire. And it was ruled by a man named Atiochus Epiphanes. That's a fun name to say, Atiochus Epiphanes. And this was a bad dude. He hated Jewish people. So the first thing he did is he marched his army down to Jerusalem. He went into the temple and looted it. Every valuable thing was brought out. And then he marched in a group of pigs. Now, pigs were an unclean animal. Jewish people were never to get near it. Certainly, they would never enter the temple. And Antiochus Epiphanes took these pigs into the most holy place where God's presence was supposed to be, and he made a sacrifice to his God with pigs in the temple. They called it the abomination of desecration. Not only that, but then he took the flesh of the pigs and forced the priests to eat the flesh so that they would all be condemned as unclean. And you can see the Jewish people weren't quite fond of Antiochus Epiphanes either. In fact, there was one man in particular. He was known as Judas Maccabeus. Everybody had cool names back then. Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus is not his last name. It actually means the hammer. So I think of like a WWE superstar. Like you've heard of the rock. Well, get ready for the hammer. Because what the hammer does is he goes around and he starts these, this small band of army that does these guerrilla attacks on the Seleucid Empire. And every time he wins, his army grows bigger and bigger until finally it's large enough. He marches it into Jerusalem. He defeats the Seleucid Empire, the most powerful empire in the world, and he frees Jerusalem. He establishes a new era of Jewish freedom. And do you know what the first thing he did was? He went to the temple and he cleansed it and then he told everybody, we're going to celebrate Sukkot. So they bring their palm branches in, and they start waving them, and they're celebrating, and they light a fire, which is supposed to last for eight days, but they only had enough oil for one day. And miraculously, it lasted for the entire duration of the festival. By the way, that's the story of Hanukkah. That's why they, they light eight candles at Hanukkah. And from that point on, the, the palm branch became the symbol of Jewish freedom. So like the, the closest parallel is that when you see a bald eagle, first thing you think of is like freedom, democracy, America. And when they would see a palm branch, they would think this is Jewish freedom. I mean, they put it on the back of their coins. It was always a symbol that yes, one day God is going to defeat the oppressors again. Now that period of Jewish freedom didn't last for too long because after Judas died, the empire got split and they were defeated once again. So by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, the Jewish people are again oppressed and in bondage to the most powerful empire on earth. This time it's the Roman Empire. And the question everybody's asking is, is God going to save us again? Now that's where we pick up John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival, I want to stop there for just a moment. We read in this verse that there's a large crowd gathered for a festival. Now, Jesus has just told his disciples, we have to go back to Jerusalem. Now, why did Jesus have to go to Jerusalem? I mean, the answer is, is that he knows he's going to die. But the other reason is that it's Passover time. This is the festival everyone was celebrating. And so Jewish people all over the world were required to go back to Jerusalem. So that city normally had a population of about 60 or 70,000, so not unlike Woodstock. But what scholars say is during Passover week, the population would swell to upwards of half a million people. I mean, can you imagine half a million people for one week trying to live in this city? I mean, it would be absolutely incredible. And remember, they're all there to celebrate Passover, which is a remembrance of what? 
when God delivered them from the most powerful empire on earth into freedom. And now they're living under bondage to the most powerful empire on earth. And what do they want? They want freedom. So you get this sense that there's this electricity in the air. In fact, it was during this week that a lot of other so-called messiahs would have revolts and rebellions against the Roman Empire. In fact, just a few years before Jesus' birth, this happened, and the Romans came in and slaughtered thousands of Jewish people to put it down. So while the Jewish people had their tradition of going back to Jerusalem for Passover, the Romans developed their own. See, on the week of Passover, it would start with the governor, Pontius Pilate. He would hop on his war horse and he would enter the city from the western side, followed by chariots and military troops and weapons. And it was a big display of this military force. And they would march through the city of Jerusalem and set up camp in a military tower they had built right next to the temple so that they were telling the Jewish people, we've got our eye on you. Don't try to revolt. Don't try to rebel. Don't try to uprise because guess what? We'll slaughter you now like we slaughtered you then. And you know what they called this? They called this the triumphal entry. Pilate would march in every year showing how triumphant, how powerful, how strong the Roman Empire was. That's what we just read in the time of that festival. What happened? John chapter 12, verse 12, second half of the verse. It says, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They've got their palm branches, which is a symbol of what? Freedom. They're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Why are they so excited that Jesus is here? Because they've heard about this man. They've heard he's taught some pretty incredible things. Not only that, but rumor has it that not too long ago, he fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and fish. We've heard that he's healed people who have been sick for years. That there were demon-possessed people that were set free from their bondage. And even just a few days ago, that he resurrected a man named Lazarus from the dead. If all those things are true, then certainly this Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior we've been waiting for. So he comes into town not riding a war horse, but riding a donkey. Do we call this Jesus triumphal entry? But it's really a play on words because Pilate has a triumphal entry with the military strength. Jesus comes in not on a war horse, but a donkey. Not with the military, but a group of misfits called his disciples who were fishermen and tax collectors, certainly not warriors. And Jesus comes in and the people think, this is the guy. This is the time we revolt. This is the time we rebel. We're finally getting everything we've ever wanted. Now, there's four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're all told from different perspectives, so they all include different stories. Now, there's a handful of stories that you'll find in, in one or two of the Gospels that they share together. Then there's a few of them that three of the Gospels will tell. This is one of the very few that shows up in all four Gospel accounts. And Luke adds a detail to this story that John doesn't include. And I want to look at that in Luke chapter 19, verse 39. It says, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The teacher, tell them to be quiet. Now, why were the Pharisees so upset? I used to think it was because they were upset that these people were praising Jesus. But 
the more I understand the story, the more I realize that's not the case because they weren't actually praising Jesus, were they? Now see, they weren't interested in Jesus. They were just interested in what Jesus could do for them. See, they didn't want to worship Jesus. They just wanted to worship freedom and their rights and their deliverance. I felt so convicted this week reading in John chapter six, where Jesus does this series of miracles. He heals people. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. And every time he performs a miracle, the crowd goes bigger and bigger. And they keep asking Jesus, do more, do more miracles. And finally, he turns around and says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They go, whoa, Jesus, that's a hard teaching. It's like, no duh. And it says a bunch of the disciples left. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and said, are you going to leave too? And they say, where would we go? I felt so convicted because the vast majority of people were more interested in the miracle than in the miracle worker. They were more interested in what Jesus could do for them than they were in Jesus. And I wonder how many of us are here today and we're frustrated and we're mad and we walked away from faith because Jesus didn't do what you wanted him to do. You were praying and you were asking him to do something and he didn't step up and deliver. So you said, Jesus, I don't need you. Jesus, I only want you to show up if you're going to give me some blessing. Sometimes we treat Jesus like this cosmic gumball machine. We put a prayer in and a blessing comes out. We put money in the plate and then we get money back in the mail. That's how it works, right? That's how it works if all you care about is what Jesus can do for you. And that's what these people were obsessed with, what Jesus can do for us. So they're not worshiping Jesus. Why were the Pharisees, these religious leaders, so upset? Because as Jesus is walking in on the eastern side of town, who's walking in on the western side? It's the Romans. And they actually have real warriors and chariots and real horses. They say, Jesus, you got to get these guys to shut up or they're going to kill us all. You're going to get us killed. And then Jesus replies, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. I've always thought, and I've even taught that what Jesus is saying is, if they stop praising me, even the very rocks would praise me. Remember, these people aren't praising Jesus. They're looking forward to revolution. So uh, this week I researched that phrase, the very rocks would cry out. It actually shows up several times throughout the Old Testament. One of them is in Joshua chapter 24, verse 27. Joshua just led the Jewish people into the promised land. They'd finally got the promise that God had for them. And so he rereads all the commands, all of the covenant, and then he sets up these stones as a monument. And he says, you see this stone. It will be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words the Lord said to us, and it will be a witness against you so that you will not deny your God. So the stone is going to bear witness in judgment. In fact, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 10, this shows up again. Habakkuk is talking about the Babylonians who have oppressed the Jewish people and they've used them for slave labor. And he says, yes, God's going to come after the Babylonians too. He says, you have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. See, the stones never cry out in praise. They always cry out in judgment. That when you've walked away, when you have misunderstood Jesus, when you've made it more about yourself than him, the stones cry out in judgment. And what Jesus tells those Pharisees is they could stop asking for this, but I already know where their heart is and it's headed down a path of judgment. And then look at the very next verse. It says, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. Saying, if you knew this day, what would be, bring peace? 
but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time God visited you. He starts to weep because he knows judgment is coming. In fact, in less than 40 years, this is exactly what happens. The Romans will eventually surround Jerusalem. They actually try to starve the people, and then they come in, slaughter them, and tear the temple down brick by brick until there was nothing left. Jesus said, this is the path you've chosen to take, the path of power, the path of demanding your rights and what belongs to you. It leads to judgment and destruction. And the thing is, you didn't even recognize God. And that's such a convicting statement that we have to wrestle with. So what Jesus are we worshiping? The one who's come to stand up for our rights, the one who's come to bless us and answer our prayers, or the one who tells us, you know, pick up your cross and follow me, the Jesus who came to die. So I wonder if the reason that some of us are headed down this wrong path is, we don't recognize Jesus because it's all about us. See, I think about myself. Where would I be that day Jesus came in? And to be honest with you, I probably would have been in the crowd right there screaming with him. Defend our faith, Jesus. <laughs> Defend our rights. Give us freedom. Make Israel great again. I would have been right there with him demanding that Jesus do what I want done. And yet he was on a pathway to lay down his life for those he loved. And that's you and that's me. And see, I think the question we have to wrestle with is, you might very well be entitled to something, but are you willing to sacrifice it for the sake of love? You can have rights, but doesn't Jesus call us to lay them down? There's a culture and, and every nation, every nation has a culture. Every family has a culture. Every church has a culture. The way we talk about our culture here at Bridgepoint, it revolves around four things. We want to be a church that loves God, loves people, chooses joy, and pursues excellence. So, so hopefully when you came in, you had an opportunity to really love and encounter God, that you felt loved as a person, that you saw people who were choosing joy, and that we would pursue excellence in everything. That's kind of the culture that we want to be our nation has a culture as well. It was defined in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. that All men are created equal. And what rights do we have? The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those are all amazing things. But oftentimes in our lives, we, we want the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness at the cost of other things. For example... We, we, as followers of Jesus, we value life. We do. That's why we value life in, in all its forms. We want to be pro-life, not just in the womb, but, but out of the womb. What does it the old pastor say? From the womb to the tomb, we want to be pro-life. But what often happens is we are so pro-our life that we're not pro-other people's lives. Like we're pro-our life, and so, you know, kid, kids kind of mess things up. I mean, if you're a kid here, just close your eyes for a second, close your ears, but Kids kind of mess up your plans, right? And I think that, that that's one reason that abortion is so abhorrent. Because not everybody, but there are some people who choose abortion because that baby doesn't fit in, in my life plans. 
That's an infringement on, on my life, on my right to pursue happiness. And so it's easier just to get rid of the problem. But you know, there are some of you here today and you didn't get an abortion, but you're still choosing your life at the cost of your kids. So you're at work all the time. You can't remember the last time you saw your kids. You're not leading devotions. You're not spending time with your family. All you're trying to do is fulfill your dreams at the cost of your family. That's abhorrent too. See, the reality is that if we want to be pro-life, see, I think sometimes we're just pro-birth, but if you want to be pro-life, guess what? I think the real solution to this problem is it's just me. By the way, it's always a good time to remind you, my goal every Sunday is not to convince you that I'm right. My goal is to challenge you to look closer to Jesus. That's all my goal is. So if you, you say, man, that guy was way off on everything. If it made you closer to Jesus, then that, that's a win. But see, I, I think that, that the real solution to abortion is, is not how we vote, but it's how we live. Because there are some people who, the reason they've chosen that route is because they don't know how they're going to support this baby. They, they don't know how they're going to make ends meet. And what it might mean is that more of us need to step up to open our homes to foster kids. We need to step, open up our homes to adopt children. What if we said, you know what? You can live with me. Well, wait a second. That, that's going to change my life if I have somebody else living with me. That's going to cost me my freedom. Wait, wait that, that room was my man cave. No, 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 I have the right to life. But if we want others to find life in Jesus, then we have to be willing to lay down our life. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. See, that's the kind of life that we've been called to live. And you know what? It's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. If following Jesus hasn't cost you anything, you're probably not following Jesus. It's going to cost us our lives. Or what about liberty? What about freedom? Because we want to be free to do what we want when we want it. And free to chase after this and that. And what I have found in my life is the very things that I find chasing in freedom have actually put me in bondage. Oh, if I, if I just get enough money, then I'll be happy. Oh, if I go out every weekend and party, then I'll be fulfilled. Oh, you know, if I just have kids, that'll make everything great. And what you realize is all of these things that you've been chasing, all these things that you think you have the freedom to do, they actually trap you in sin, bondage, and oppression. What Jesus has called us to do is to lay down our freedom for the sake of others. See, in the New Testament, Paul is navigating this dispute between the early Christians. Because Paul had said, you guys can eat any meat. Like in the Old Testament, there was meat that was restricted. I praise God that we're allowed to eat pork and barbecue. That must be on my mind. I've mentioned it like 18 times this morning, probably getting barbecue after church. I don't know. But, but there, there was this real question then because a lot of that meat was sacrificed to idols. And so some of the Christians were saying, well, we can't eat this meat because it was sacrificed to a false God. And then there were other Christians who would say, but that God's not real anyway, and the meat is just going to go to waste. So let's have some barbecue. And so they're having this big debate. And, and Paul says, you, you know who's right? The reality is all the food is good to eat. But if you're around someone who's uncomfortable with it, then you lay down your right to eat that food for their sake. So you have a right to do a lot of things. You have the right to go out and drink as much as you want. The real question is, should you? You have the right to spend your money in whatever way you want. The question is, should you? You have the right to 
homeschool or send your kids to public school? The, the question is, should you? See, the reality is those are questions that on a Sunday morning in a sermon, I can't answer for you. Because God is calling you to lay down your rights for the sake of other people. You know, I have the right to send my kids away to boarding school. But if I'm just doing it because I want my freedom and my right, I've got to lay down my rights for the sake of my kids. So you all have the right to things. The question is, what is Jesus calling us to lay down? Now, at this point, I want to throw it open to Q&A. i got a couple minutes left. I think I can squeeze it in. If we can't stand up for our rights, then how do we tell the world about Jesus Christ? Man, I'm not trying to be silly here, but that's what, we're ta- that's what I'm talking about right now. Like, how do we tell the world about Jesus? That we have to be different than Jesus. When you lay down your rights, when you say your life and your rights are more important than mine, that's how the world sees Jesus. See, I, I hear people from, from all sides say, you know what they say? It's, it's, it's a heart problem, right? It's not a gun problem. It's a heart problem. It's not an abortion problem. It's a heart problem. See, it's a problem of the heart. So standing up for my right to do anything doesn't change anybody's heart. But when you lay down your life, that's when people get open to what Jesus has for them. See, our job, by the way, our job is not to convince people about Jesus. Our job is to be Jesus, to be his hands and his feet, to show the world what Jesus is like, and the Holy Spirit will then draw them to himself. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, the Holy Spirit will draw everyone to me. Our goal isn't to convince people, to argue people. Our goal is to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And what happened to the hands and feet of Jesus? They were nailed to the cross. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's painful. Like, can't you be more positive? Yeah, I'm positive that following Jesus is hard and that it costs us something, but it's when we follow Jesus that heaven comes to earth, that lives are transformed, that injustices are fixed, that the wrong is made right, that the dead are raised back to life. And see, that's the challenge before each and every one of us today. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. If we put that in a modern context, Jesus would say, pick up your electric chair and follow me. That's kind of weird, Jesus. He said, yeah, it is. The call is to die every day. To die to what we can do so that other people can see Jesus. So here's how I want to end our time together. I want to share communion just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And after that, we have communion stations set up throughout the room. And it's COVID-friendly communion. So I'll just remind you, you got the little wafer is on the top. So you pull the top part up first to get to the wafer, the bottom part to get to the juice. If you pull the bottom part up, you're not going to be able to have the styrofoam wafer and you'd hate to, to miss out on that. But as you're taking communion today, when we take communion, I know it seems weird, but in a real way, Jesus is with us. He's present with us. And I want you to think what the death and resurrection of Jesus cost him. And then I want you to wrestle with this question. What are areas in your life that you need to lay down for the sake of love? Maybe it's a job that you really want, but you need to say no for the sake of love. Maybe it's a school that you're really trying to get into, but you got to say, no, no, I'm laying it down to follow Jesus. Maybe it's the way you spend your money. I don't know what it is, but I do know this. Every person here has something that Jesus is calling us to lay down today. 
at the tables, you're gonna see we have stacks of journals because I know some people love to process through these things by, by journaling. And so listen, you're not, you don't have to turn those in, that's yours to keep. So feel free, whatever God is speaking to you in these next few moments, whatever it is to lay down, just write that down and let's surrender that to Jesus. So I'll pray and then we'll share in communion together. God, I thank you so much that you were willing to lay down everything for us. I pray now we would put that on display for the world to see, that we would be your hands and feet, pierced to the cross, broken, so that people would see you. I pray right now that your spirit would work on us. What are the areas in our lives we need to lay down, God? Right now, we're just here to surrender everything to you with open hands, with open hearts. Jesus, we want to be fully yours. It's in your name I pray, amen. As you feel led, you can go ahead and share in communion. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.